Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. This week we will be doing 10 questions with someone in recovery. And I just happened to be in Las Vegas for the Mobilize Recovery event. So I'm actually getting to talk to somebody that I've been friends with on Facebook for several years and never actually got to meet in person. So Randy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, good morning, David, and thank you for having me on the on your show. I think it's a great opportunity. I think it's so. I just have first start saying just being in Vegas is really a cool thing. Uh, I think for some of us, it maybe brings some back some old memories about our recovery. For me, for sure, I used to spend a lot of time in Vegas. Uh, but yeah, this you know, if not for things like podcast and social media and all that stuff, I would meet so many amazing people like you. So I really appreciate it. So my name is Randy Anderson. And I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means to me is I haven't had to use alcohol or drugs or mood-altering substance since January 9, 2005. And because of my recovery, I'm able to accomplish just like things I never thought I would do in my life. I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of in my state is I've uh, uh, been training and doing naloxone trainings for about five years now. I've, I, don't, I haven't kept good track, but I guess I've, I've had facilitated over 1,000 trainings Trained 10,000 people, distributed over 20,000 oxone kits. Holy cow, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's like, to me, that's that's why I'll start with that, because I think that, especially with the current situation we're in in our country, like, it's amazing. We just found out this last week that our death numbers are dropping uh, for the first time and, you know, since it started. Right. Uh, so that's, I'm going to take some credit and say, I think, because of that. Uh, but also, you know, I, I may, because of my recovery, I'm able to have healthy relationships. I'm in a great marriage to someone that I love and I communicate well with. I own a home. I, I vote. I, I pay taxes. I do all those things that normal people do. But really, none of that, uh, none of that would be possible without recovery. Uh, I also always, always like to mention that I'm also a formerly incarcerated person. So I was sentenced to 87 months in prison as a first-time non-violent drug offender with no criminal history. And I think that's important to, that always to kind of talk about because our criminal justice system intertwines with substance use disorder it, almost in every case. Like, I mean, it's almost, right. I mean, not, not, yeah, almost every case. I mean, it's really, I mean, if, if you got arrested, maybe you didn't get charged. Uh, if, but somehow in your substance use disorder, you had some type of engagement with the justice system. And I think so it's important to talk about that. So because of that, it's my life experience and lived experiences, though, I've been able to just do incredible things in my state. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of from the criminal justice aspect is uh, I was able to help in our state. We redid, in, in, we started in 2015, we ended in 2016 in the law went into effect, but we changed our drug sentencing guidelines. And uh, with those changes, 700 less people go to prison, less, 700 less people go to prison every year in my state because I was able to help with that. And so that's something I'm really proud of. They actually, you know, those are people with substance use disorder, right? right? And they get screened for substance use disorder and they get to go get help first before being sent to jail or prison where we know there's not a lot of help available, right? I mean, it's getting better in some places, uh, but majority, it's still not a place you want to send someone with a disease. 
so I'm really proud of that. So I guess that's uh, that's probably the stuff that's really important to introduce myself as. Uh, as, as you know, Jim, I've, I've worked on and been able to been part of so many things in my life already and in my five short years of advocacy work. Uh, so I'm, I'm just, that's a, that's the, just the tip of the iceberg for me, but it's, it's really important stuff. So, yeah, I think sometimes that's an important thing that sometimes gets flossed over too is prison is not a good place for somebody to go to rehabilitate. No, you know, there's a, there's a myth, I think that uh, most of the public has that uh, in general, that people that go to prison get some type rehabilitated or rehabilitation. Uh, and honestly, not, not in my experience, that doesn't occur for most people. Uh, if you're someone that goes to prison and you still have motivation, which let me tell you, going to prison uh, is like a motivation sucker. Right. Uh, you go there. I remember I just went into a deep, deep state of depression. Like I, I didn't want to do anything. So those, though, that go there that, you know, somehow maintain a positive attitude or maybe get their positive attitude back. I mean, they can do in the, where I was at in the prisons I was at, you could do correspondence classes so they could, if they had money, again, well, that came down to privilege though. So if you're came from a family that had money or you had some type of privilege, uh, you were able to afford to order books and do these steps, you know, through right. the, so those are the only kind, that's the only kind of, I mean, they had, they wanted me to take a class. I didn't have a GED. So they wanted me to take GED classes and I refused. And of course, then they threaten you. Uh, we're going to throw you in the hole. We're going to take away good time. We're going to transfer you to another prison, all this stuff. Uh, we went round and round and finally they just let me take the test and I passed the test. So I got my GED while I was in prison. But that's the kind of things they like for, and it's not a bad thing. So first of all, having my GED, I'm grateful I got it. But the way they kind of go about it is... They wanted me to take a class on how to balance a checkbook. Like I've ran businesses, I've run fifty men crew. I, I don't, I know how to balance a checkbook. Right. Like that's not what I need. It's not tailored to an individual. If there is any kind of education, it's just a blanket education. Which it, we, I mean, that's not, that's not helpful. That's not rehabilitation. So yeah, it's a, that's a big myth. And you're uh, fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it. You did fed time too, which means you had to do a much larger portion of your sentence for a first time offender. Yeah, so the, the difference in my state between doing Fed time and state time, so if you're a state-charged person, you get char- you do 65% of your time, so two-thirds of all of your time. Federal, on the other hand, you do 85% of your time. Uh, so it's a, yeah, much different sentence. So uh, here again, though, I was very blessed in a lot of ways. One way is that I'm a, a middle-aged white guy, and I was sentenced during the time when the uh, crack cocaine and cocaine epidemic that we had, and... I noticed when I was in prison that people that didn't look like me, specifically not white people that were in prison with sentence or uh, charges similar to mine, got sentenced to much greater time than I did, which was like, wow, what? Just it just it was shocking. And uh, I also got so then when I was incarcerated, they changed the crack cocaine and the powder cocaine law. So they took away the disparities between the two. Uh, which was a that was a total racist thing. They right. they they assumed only black people smoke crack, and that that's why we should charge them with more time. Uh, which, but they did change that, and so I got two levels knocked off of my sentence because of that. And I took, uh, even though I got uh, I went to a long term residential treatment program before prison, thank God, and I I found recovery and I was able to maintain that. I went to prison sober. Uh, but the, I still was eligible for their re their RDAP program, so residential drug abuse program, and I could get up to a year off my sentence. No one gets a year off their sentence, right? But I got I did get six months off. So really, honestly, I mean, I served incarcerated in, behind bars a total with some county jail and halfway house time about sixty months. And that literally, to me, when I look back on what I could have done, and I mean, my total charges with everything I had was one hundred and fifty six months. 
So I always say I was blessed. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people look at me like, you're crazy. You say you're blessed. You spent five years in prison. Yeah, but the, the other end of that was a lot worse. Unfortunately fortunate. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay. So, and I also want to call attention to a couple other things that you've been able to do. Um, uh, one of them is pretty... N- I don't know. I, I was going to use the word nifty. I feel like I'm in the 50s now. I have no idea what's going on here. Um, maybe it's being in Vegas. It's the old crime. Right, right. off on the Westgate, which is older than the hills. <laughs> right. But you guys in Minnesota were able to get a tax added to uh, prescri- prescription opioids. Uh, tell me a little bit, bit about that and what the tax is going to go to in your state. Yeah, sir. First, I'd just like to say we didn't uh, it's not a tax. I think that's one thing a okay. lot of people, it's okay. No, it's good. You, you say that because that's what a lot of people are calling it. Uh, and I'm not here to tote party lines, but that's what the Republicans called it. Uh, cause obviously they don't like new taxes and, and really does anyone like new taxes? I don't think so. I'm not, you know, uh, what we did is we ended up doing is it took three years, but thank God we did it. We ended up increasing licensing fees mainly for opioid manufacturers and distributors. Uh, so what we we're able to do is if you so prior to this bill we passed and got signed, if you were a, a narcotic manufacturer in the state of Minnesota or a distributor, you paid a licensing fee of two hundred and thirty five dollars. <laughs> I am a licensed. That's it, right? Yes, I'm a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, and to renew my license with my CEUs costs twice that every year. Right. And so it was ridiculous that to think they could make millions of dollars off of these narcotic drugs and medications. And they only paid $235. So what we did is we were able to increase their licensing fees, but we also increased licensing fees for pharmacies, pharmacists, doctors, uh, other areas, not a lot. I mean, and the doctors got really pissed. Can I say pissed on the podcast? Yeah. The doctors got really mad. They, uh, they, uh, uh, so it was only like 25 bucks increase on their, on their, uh, license. And yet they got, they pushed back. I understand why they pushed back. I mean, the, I mean, the hospitals really did because the hospitals pay their licensing fees. And so $25 on a thousand doctors. And I guess I can add it really quickly. Right. Whatever. They're part of the problem. Right. So we wanted to make sure everyone that was part of creating the opioid epidemic was part of the solutions and fixing the opioid epidemic. So all in all, when we increase all those licensing fees, we're able to collect about $21 million a year just off increased licensing fees, which is amazing. Like, right. right. And that, so, and we did, uh, there was a lot of negotiation. We did, we, one clause we put in there that we didn't want, but the Republicans want. So a compromise is what it takes sometimes to pass a bill. So we did put a sunset in that bill, which, so that means, so five years, if we collect $250 million in combined money from licensing fee increases or lawsuit or litigation, that once it hits $250 million, we will sunset the fee to a, to a reduced fee, not sunset it completely. So right now there will be about $55,000 each for the high end of those manufacturers. Right. One will pay 300000 because that's how much business they do in Minnesota. Uh, and it'll, they'll all go down to $5,000 and then the, all the rest of the same. Even after it sunsets, we'll still be collecting $13 million a year. So And that's paid for directly by the people that caused this epidemic. So that was really cool. First, uh, uh, first one in the country, New York passed a lot very similar to that, but theirs got rejected. Uh, but Delaware then passed one right after we did. So there's already been two states now that did it. And I've, I've been in communication with 
dozen states that are like, how do we do this? So yeah, absolutely, and that money's earmarked for. So yeah, so ten million dollars a year will go to the counties. Like so, it's, I that's, that's a minute amount of money. I get that we have eighty-seven counties in Minnesota, right. so that's very little. But it is uh, it's for out of home targeted towards out of home placement because of people with substance use disorder, not just opioid addiction, but substance use disorder. So that money will go to help offset those costs, and then the other. Two million is earmarked for like healing grants for the tribes. And then eight million is actually through a grant process that people can apply for. And the, this is my favorite part of the whole bill is we developed a 19 person advisory council. And so and those are people that will determine how that eight million dollars is spent. And we wrote it into the bill that any money we receive from lawsuit or litigations will go into that same fund. And the advisory council gets to decide how it's spent. So who's on that council? So it's a list of like, so two senators, two House of Representatives, you know, Republican, Democrat, uh, two tribe members, uh, a a pain patient, a pain doctor, a person, a person that represents the treatment community, a person that represents uh, all, just a host. I'm actually, I'm really proud of that part of that. So I wrote an amendment, my, my first and only amendment, and it got added. So the original language had two pain patients in there. And I said, I met with my one of my senators. I said, I one of the authors. I said, really, I, I appreciate that. I think it's a good idea to have that voice at the table. Where's recovery? Right? Right. right? Where's the recovery voice? And so I was able to get an amendment. We took out one pain patient and we added a person uh, in recovery from opioid use disorder. And so one person on there will be a person in recovery from opioid use disorder. That to me is a win. Like right. I got my first and only, because we all know recovery voices are often left out of the conversation or we have so this at least we're in there like hey we're finding our in, got our foot in the door and we'll be helped to make those decisions so that's the the gist of the bill or how it's set up so okay yeah because it's kind of that whole nothing about us without us correct but, right? I, either you had a seat at the table or you're on the menu i mean i think yeah. that, that's so we've been saying that this two days here a lot i did like that addendum that uh i don't remember who had it but she said you know she said your other option is to create your own table right yeah you know, oh, but my uh uh yeah, Jesse Hefferton. Okay, but that takes power. Oh my God! And yes. unfortunately, a lot of times it takes power and money, and those Time. are two things, <laughs> and three things yeah. that a lot of people don't have. You know, I mean, most people that are advocates, this isn't what we, we we're not advocates for a living, right? right? We're uh, peers, we're uh, recovery coaches, we're you know therapists, we're CS, you know, uh, community support workers, right. community support specialists. Um, consultants, you know, I mean, we have these different things that we have to do to take up a lot of our time. So pay our bills. Yeah. We don't have people that, that can just focus on that. Right. You know, I, I think I, I know one lobbyist yeah. uh, in DC that is, is kind of focused on recovery, which would be Carol, Carol McDade. McDade. We all are here. I'm my hero as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that you did, uh, was, uh, I, I believe I saw you on TV on, uh, like C-SPAN. C-SPAN. So, uh, yeah, that was a pretty cool thing. So in uh, uh, January, December, January 2017, 18, I found out that that, that that partnership had been created between uh, Addiction Policy Forum and Pharma, which is an uh, acronym PHRMA, Pharmaceutical Research Manufacturers of America. They're the lobbying branch of the entire pharmaceutical industry. Okay. Their board is made up of a member from all of the pharmaceutical companies like Purdue Pharma, you know Johnson and Johnson, Alchemy—they're right. all on that. They all—they do—they flow money into that organization to lobby around the country. And so it's a big organization, yeah, to say the least. Uh, I looked at their nine nineties again a few weeks ago, and 
$465 million budget or income is what they had in 2017. Uh, and all they do is uh, lobby. Lobby. They lobby. That's their primary goal. Half a billion dollars. Yeah, half a billion a dollars year. a year. Just that one organization gets. Wow. Yeah. So they gave this uh, addiction policy form a bunch of money. In fact, $3.85 million in 2017. We don't know how much yet for 2018. That's what we've been asking since... That's what I've been asking since right. I found out. So in March of 2018, in fact, two or three days after my birthday, uh, I had someone had called me and said, hey, Randy, the CEO of Addiction Policy Forum is testifying in front of the Energy and Commerce Committee in D.C. And I know what you're, the work you've been doing because I found out a lot of stuff about them. You shouldn't fly out there and disrupt the hearing. And I said, I'm not a disruptor. Like I've testified hearings. <clears throat> I've never disrupted. In fact, I get mad when people disrupt hearings. I think how disrespectful right, is that? Rude. Yeah, rude. Like this is like, I, I, I didn't know what that meant until, so this came up and I, so I Googled how to disrupt a congressional hearing. Uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised. What so you, there's a way there's, to do it. Yeah, there's, a, you'd be surprised. So there is a way to do it. Uh, I got like a wiki how to, yeah. or? Well, I watched the videos and I watched the ways not to do it. Uh, so don't wear a chicken suit and jump around like an idiot. Uh, you can. Uh, you get arrested really quickly and hauled off to jail. Uh, what I did, I knew I could still be arrested for. But I, so I, I did talk to a few people that were uh, friends of mine that had experience in that world. And so they told me how to do it. They said, so create a one pager with uh, like your name and your bullet points on it. Because in case you do get arrested, you can hand that to reporters or anyone that might be interested. Uh, you know, have some type of pro protest ready. So I made a sign that I folded up into a backpack. Uh, but yeah, so I flew out and it was a snowstorm and I got two missed two flights. I finally landed in DC at like 1.30 in the morning and this thing starts at eight. That's motel, two in the morning, 2.30, three, hour, three, four hours of sleep. And here I sat and then the first three hours was this other complete other testimony from another group of people. It was all around opioids though. Uh, it was two days of hearings. Well, then came this panel. In fact, it's very ironic because that same... In that room was Ryan Hampton, uh, Garrett Hade, and Carol McDade. Uh, they were all there to at, with Ryan. To, he was testifying in right. the same panel. We Ryan and I only knew each other through social media at that time. We weren't really friends yet. Uh, we just, and and I was I didn't want like I didn't want to acknowledge him. I didn't want to, he, anyone to think he may be involved. Right. With it. And Carol saw me, and I could see her, like we pretended we didn't know each other, even though we did. Uh, <laughs> she probably was wondering what so I was. She was forewarned, she, or no? no? She she was probably just wondering what I was doing. Okay. There, why I was in D.C. So, anyways, the person came up to speak, and I, as soon as she said one word, "Hi, I'm Jessica Nickel from Addiction," I, I stood up, I pulled my sign out of my backpack, unfolded it, and I first thing out of my mouth where I said, "Pardon me, Mr. Chairman and committee members, uh, I apologize for the disruption I'm about to cause." <laughs> Uh, well, it's nice of you. <laughs> right, exactly. The C-SPAN camera, then I saw it turn over to me, and I just started going into this rant. Like, So I want to know, I flew here today to ask how much money has addiction policy forum received from the pharmaceutical industry. Like, you came to my state, you tried to disrupt and kill our legislation, have secret meetings with our legislators, create a blueprint for our state that was just copy and pasted from all of the hard work we've already been doing and make it look like yours. I said, I'm here to find that out. And uh, I got about a minute and a half. Uh, it's on C-SPAN. I, I, I titled it. You can C-SPAN is really cool. You can clip videos out of it. You can retitle them, whatever you want to do. So I clipped my portion out. It's called Civil Disobedience 1.1. <laughs> okay. And it's about a minute, 30, sec 30 seconds long. Uh, <clears throat> eventually, when the chairman said, can I get Capitol Police to help us get Mr. Anderson or the gentleman removed from the 
hearing room. I decided to leave. I walked out the door. The Rayburn building has, I was right in the middle. It's two long hallways, one each direction. As the, the exit is right across, I was heading out the exit. Two reporters chased after me out of the room, uh, grabbed me. Uh, I whipped out my one pager, handing it to him because I thought, I'm not going to get arrested because there was a Capitol Police running from each direction. Uh, they got to the door of the hearing room. The staffer pointed at me and said, that's the guy. Uh, they turned around, looked at me. I was talking to reporters. And the On camera. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> the Capitol Police decided that, that I was no longer a threat, <laughs> I guess, because they, right. they walked away. So I did the quick, in quick interview with the reporters. Uh, and then I left and I flew home. I had some pizza and uh, one of my favorite pizza places in D.C. And I got on a plane and flew back home. So it was a, a quick turn and burn trip. The beauty of that. So the idea of that, that disruption was to. So I didn't want someone that is accepting pharmaceutical money to lobby Congress to spend my tax dollars. Right. I mean, now you're, you're telling someone to spend my money and you're getting paid by the people that created the problem. That's not right in my book. Like, There's something wrong with that. And so at the end of the two days, there was a report or they were do They put out a, a overview of the there was two days of hearings and I got a copy of it. Someone, of course, I, I think it was Carol, actually, I said after she called me right away. Oh, my God, I can't believe what you just did. And uh, she, I, so she gave me the report and nowhere in that two six page report, addiction policy form wasn't mentioned. And her and the testimony of her was left out completely. So mission accomplished. Right. I mean, that's the, the goal was not to have her and that organization influence our leaders, our elected officials. And it worked, I think. I mean, at least for a minute. And it's kind of sad. I mean, I, I don't like to disparage <coughs> any companies, but I right. mean, A, I think there should definitely be some kind of transparency. Like, I have a nonprofit, right. and anybody can ask. Right. Anybody asks, where, where, where's your money coming from? I can sit there and hand them something that says, and of course, we're nowhere near as big as addiction policy right. forum because right. I don't take money from a lot of different companies. I'm very uh, picky about who I take any kind of funding from. You know, um, as far as like pharmaceutical companies, uh, there's been some uh, bottlers of alcohol that have right. wanted to, to donate and have their logo on stuff. And I'm like, you know, I don't think that a, a, a beer mug with your name on it um, <laughs> is going to look really good on the back of a 5K recovery run T-shirt. You know, and you know, if people say to me, Randy, what do we do? We, we, we just don't take the money. So I said, no, nope, I didn't say that. So there are ways to get the money without having to do it in an unethical manner. And so I said, so, I mean, two of the best ways are through legislation, which Minnesota just did, right. or litigation, right? The litigation part, of course, makes me worry because, like, now I just read yesterday uh, the second largest uh, buprenorphine manufacturer got the Department of Justice set, made a settlement of $1.4 billion. Yeah. Where is that money going to go? Do you think you and I will see any of that money? No, and I think that's one of the problems I've seen a lot of times where, like, say, in Missouri, we had money that was earmarked from the lottery. They're like, we're going to take this money from the lottery, and it's going to go to education. Right. Now, now, they were honest. That money went to education, but the budget shrunk. So literally, education isn't getting a whole lot more than it used to get right. before. Now it's just coming from the lottery right. instead of coming from other places. Absolutely. And that's what that's, <clears> that's <throat> what I'm, where we, sh we should be worried about. And I'm like I'm hoping this mobilized recovery will be part of that. And I know we got some like they have a lot of work to do to get everything set up. But we have to be very mindful when this money comes into our states. Uh, we need to make sure it gets to the people that are going to have the greatest impact, and that's us, David. 
I mean, that's the people on the street doing the work, the, the, the prevention, the treatment centers, the recovery support services. Though It's not going to get there, though. And that's the part that the Department of Justice is going to keep that money. There'll be some grants made out and whatever. But they're going to – I mean, I just read the, the, the Pentagon has misplaced $21 trillion or something over six or ten years, whatever it was. And, and our defense budget signed yesterday or voted on yesterday by our Congress, $725 billion they spent on defense budget. $80 billion a year on the prison system. I mean, oh, my God, can we – I mean, there's so much money there that we should be investing other ways, and we're not. So I just – when I saw that, I was glad that the pharmaceutical company, largest settlement in history, well, I'm glad. That's awesome. Right. But now where's the – we – and that's I think that's our job is, like, we need to contact our senators, our congressmen, and say, hey, the Department of Justice got this money – they, they're not going to know. Like, I mean, right. I see that unless they're really involved, which there's a few that are. <coughs> Senator Warren, Senator Klobuchar, you know, McKes uh, McKesson from uh, uh, from New Hampshire, another great one, uh, Maggie Hessen, Maggie Hessen. So there's some, but most of them in general won't even know that that happened. But if we don't let them know and tell them to look into it, we're failing. Like, then we're part, we're not helping either. So they're, yeah, I could go on a soapbox about that for a while. So well, and I really think, you know, um, <coughs> what. I'll steal a John, John Schinholzer a uh, couple words that he pieces yeah. together when he says the authentic recovery. I wish I could do accents, but you know, he says the, <laughs> the old man, that's the old man from Virginia. South, accent. Southern accent, Virginia. So yeah, he's awesome. But yeah, the authentic recovery community. I mean, literally we don't get anything, don't. you know, I mean, most States don't get earmarked. I know like my state, I think 80% of the block grant goes to treatment. 20% goes to prevention and there's nothing earmarked that goes straight to recovery. recovery. Even that, all that opioid money that came through when, uh, when Trump first came into office, which, you know, honestly, I mean, a lot of people don't like Trump, and I have reasons not to like him, too. Uh, he has he has signed legislation that has given us more funding for addiction than right. any other president. However, in that even in that bill, there, originally there was, I don't remember the exact amount, but I think it was in the, I think it was... Uh, $7 million to go over to recovery support services, and it got whittled down to, like, less than a million dollars. I mean, and think about, so let's, let's divide that into the country. 50 states. Yeah, right, yeah. And uh, So I'll take my 10 cents in cash, please. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's about how I feel about it. Well, I talk about that even with, it was, what, <laughs> like, a billion and a half dollars, something like that, that was originally in it over two years. Yeah. And I'm like, that sounds like a lot of money, but if you break it down to there's 22 million people with an active substance right. use disorder, it's like $25 each yeah, a year. Give them a check. Here's your yeah. $25 check. Right. That's It's ridiculous. Me and, me and Chad talk a lot about that. Pick what treatment right. center you want to drive by. Right. Because that's exactly. really all you're going to be able to do. You get your tank full of gas, your Uber ride. Yeah. So, so now I'm going to jump into some of those questions. Yeah. So why did you start using to begin with? So for me, I think, so I really was a adolescent, it's teenage experimental uh, peer pressure. Like, uh, I remember the first time I got drunk, uh, which really was, for me, probably the, the moment that turned on the light switch in my head that when, you know, I'm one of the unlucky Americans that of the 10, count out 10 people that has a substance use disorder. Right. And I realized now my, why, I mean, I was adopted at birth and my entire birth family I met when I was 23. And not, there. every one of them has a substance use issue. Like, there's, I'm genetically, I'm screwed, David. Right. I'm absolutely screwed. But anyways, I remember getting drunk. I was at a, I was dropped off. My parents dropped me off at a friend's graduation party. I was uh, 13, 14 years old. 
And I, of course, they're all 18 graduates there. Right. So I walk in the house. They're playing a game, uh, a drinking game called Quarters, which many of us are probably familiar with. Yeah. I wasn't at the time, but they're like, oh, sit down, Randy. Join. And they were drinking Bartles and James uh, original wine coolers, which uh, <laughs> maybe that's another kind of uh, dates me or tells you how old I am. Uh, but anyways, I started playing this game. Uh, which I'm a, I'm good at, I'm athletic, I'm coordinated, so I was I got really good at it. Uh, but I, you, no matter what, that game's meant for everyone to drink heavily, right? right? And so I don't know how many bottles and what James I had. I pretty much blacked out. The last thing I remember is getting up to go to the bathroom, uh, and I fell on the ground, and I don't remember what happened after that. And I woke up in my bed at home. Uh, apparently, I had stumbled out of the house after maybe going to the bathroom or not. No one really knows. I was walking down the main drag in my town, but I was going the wrong direction. I was heading into Crystal, Minnesota instead of towards Golden Valley. But a Golden Valley cop saw me, and he knew me, and he stopped, picked me up, and brought me home. Uh, and I think that why why that story is so important is the next morning, of course, I woke up, and my mom was like, you're so lucky. I'm like, why? Because you were so drunk, and you were. we knew you were out of it, and, and Dad just yelled at you, and he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, my mom probably said he didn't spank you. Because he like he just you were so I thought wow I don't know I don't think I thought this consciously but unconsciously I thought so this is how I don't feel pain anymore like right, right. I just get drunk or whatever you know so I think that's what started it like honestly I think that was really uh, of course I progressed into uh, from alcohol to marijuana and then when I finally met cocaine in my early twenties that was that was she was it game uh, that was yeah that was the end of all the other drugs and uh, I started a heavy relationship with cocaine but yeah. Okay. So why'd you decide to stop? What what kind of uh, (laughs) that seed? So I always tell people all the time, uh, although I don't think our, uh, of course, you heard me earlier, we were talking about the justice system and how we kind of uh, criticized it, maybe. Uh, However, (laughs) I always tell people a criminal justice intervention saved my life. Uh, So I was uh, selling drugs. Uh, I was in 2004. I had been I, I, I had a business. I was doing, I was successful. I had a good construction company. I was making good money. Of course, as you start to make more money, you're, especially you with cocaine, more. you start to use more drugs. And eventually it flopped to where my, I really wasn't running a business. I ran myself into the ground, basically. And then I started selling it. Uh, I said, well, I know all these people that always want drugs. Right. Easy transition. I'll just start selling it to pay my bills and to get high. And I started selling it. At, I literally did that for a year, year and a few months. And one day... In 2004, uh, in fact, July 23rd, 2004, never forget that day. Uh, I went, just went out to buy my sister a lawnmower. Uh, she had called and said, hey, my lawnmower broke. And I had money. I mean, I had plenty of money. Like it was like drug sales were good. Uh, right. I was, you know, I had plenty of money. I went and bought a lawnmower. I came home after that, pulled up my parking lot and uh, in my condominium building where I lived and about 15 cars surrounded my car and bulletproof vest on and DA and it was guns everywhere. And, you know, I don't, I don't, most of it's a blur. Uh, I remember them getting me out of the vehicle. Like you see on the shows where, you know, with your right hand, reach across your body and open your door and then down on your knees. And then of course they push you to the ground and cuff you and stuff. you. And that was, that started my, that started, I would say that started my journey towards recovery though, because then I went to jail I got out, I started using again, got rearrested because I violated the conditions of my release. But then my sister who, uh, had said, hey, you should go get um, have assessment done. Right. They call, still call it chemical health assessments, which I hate the word chemical health assessment, but we, we're, we're still working on Are your on chemicals language. healthy? Right. We're, we're, we're working on language still. 
uh, all over the country. Chemical Dependency Counselor, like I just can't sit up, makes my skin crawl. Anyways, so I got an assessment done while I was incarcerated. Uh, they said, yep, you were eligible for treatment. And they let me go to treatment. I thought, they're going to let me out of jail? Like, I thought, this is amazing. Like, right. I don't really want to go to get sober. Though. Like, I'm not getting in right. trouble. Yeah, I, 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 I thought, this is cool. I, I can go and pretend and fake it, right? I'm a smart guy. So anyways, I went to treatment, relapsed. I uh, brought drugs to a treatment center, got high in the treatment center, got kicked out, got sent back to prison or county jail, excuse me, not prison. Uh, they, the, bl by the bless, blessing of God or whatever your God of understanding is, they let me come back to treatment and I did the long-term residential program and I completed that. I will say it took me 10 months to complete a 60-day program. <laughs> Gilligan's Island. Yeah, right? Uh, but it's what really, and we talk about this a lot in our space, David, like that's what helps people long-term. The longer we engage people in the process, the, the better odds they have a recovery. So anyway, Absolutely. so I did that. And then in uh, January, or just January, July 6th, right after the 4th, maybe it was, yeah, right after the 4th, I went and got uh, sentenced for my crimes. I had now been uh, in recovery, uh, abstinence-based recovery since uh, January of that year. Uh, so it had been seven months. I felt pretty good. I was starting to get my life back it felt like i was uh, volunteering i wasn't really working a lot yet because i you know i had a business that i ran to the ground not really right can't, doesn't come back overnight i was doing some cash jobs with some people and stuff here and there but i got sentenced and that was probably i would say the uh worst day of my life was uh going to that courtroom and the judge was like mr anderson uh how are you today and i said i'm fine he's like they're trying to make small talk it's kind of funny to me uh this wasn't uh, uh like a treatment court but you know, situation right. where they actually use motivational interviewing and treat you like a human. <laughs> uh, and I said, he goes, uh, you know, I've read all the letters from the community. I see you're volunteering. You're, you completed treatment after a little mishap. Uh, he made sure he brought that up. Uh, and then he said, because of all that great work, I'm going to sentence you to the lowest level on your level, like the lowest amount of months time. So that's right. Like, I remember seeing this. We call it the staircase. Those right. of us that are feeling really with the justice system. Like, where do you fall on the staircase? And I knew I was like a level 32. So I knew this was pretty high on the staircase. So I said, I'm going to sentence you to, in my, so I he said, I'm going to sentence you to the lowest level on your stair. <laughs> so it's 87 months in prison. And I really literally thought, what? That's, I mean, I'm not seven years. Like what? Seven plus years. Are you, I mean, I, of course I started crying immediately and I thought this is, this is what our country does to people. Like I'm on the I'm on a right path now, and now you're gonna send right. me off to. So, anyways, but yeah, that's what did it for me. Like, so that's that's where I I I you know I, went, I remember leaving the courthouse that day, and I called my counselor at the treatment center, and I said uh, I said Mark, I'm gonna go use, and he's like, what happened? I told him what happened. He's like, just come here, have coffee with me. Just I said no because I know you're you're gonna try to talk me out of this and I just I don't see a reason not to go use right now. Anyways, I he convinced me to come have coffee with him and that's a really like strange ninja counselor yeah, right. skills, huh? <laughs> right. I'm like he just my cool. Thank God I had a good counselor. I'm just telling you that a guy I could relate to that had been to prison that you know that's what I also well if it wasn't for my family counseling and him I don't know what I would have done. But anyways, we had coffee. The funny thing is about that I remember pulling in front of the treatment center and there's like street parking. I parked right in front and. I went in the building and I don't know what happened because I can't remember what happened after that. All There's a whole, like it's, I, then I left. I remember leaving the building. I don't remember how long I was there. I don't remember the conversation we had. Uh, but I, what I do remember the most from that day is I didn't go get high. Right. Uh, and that's weird that I still, I can't like, I don't know what we talked about. I cannot, it's like, 
I don't know. And that's weird to me. It's probably a trauma response. Probably. I've got to be something blocked out there. I don't know why, but why? But yeah, he, he whatever he, whatever that conversation was, it was enough to convince me not to go get high that day. And I've been in recovery, still stayed in recovery ever since. So what does recovery mean to you? Recovery means to me that I get, I'm healthy again. I have good relationships. Uh, I'm not using drugs or alcohol in any way. Uh, uh, and I, so I, I can clarify that. So yes, I still drink coffee and have caffeine, which I do think is a drug. I'm not going to deny right. that for a second. I did finally quit smoking. Uh, I smoked cigarettes for 27 years. I quit seven years ago on my anniversary, on my wedding day. Uh, so those are all drugs, like right? right. But I, 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 for me, it means I'm abstinent from uh, minor mood-altering substances. And that doesn't mean medications. I mean, so if, I, I haven't been prescribed any narcotics, thank God, since I've been in recovery. Right. Uh, that's going to be a bridge to cross someday because I'm getting older and I have to have surgeries on knees and stuff like that. So, uh, but that's, and it means to me just getting my life back. Like, and, and, and what I like, people ask me this question all the time, like, what is recovery? I can really say it in one word, freedom. And it's not freedom from prison. I mean, it is, but it's not just freedom from prison. It's freedom from being sick. It's freedom from being broke. It's freedom from not communicating in a healthy way with people that I love in my life. It's uh, it's freedom from from uh, unhealthy relationships. It's freedom from a bit, uh, um, uh, illness. I mean, it's just it's freedom. Like right. so, yeah. So that's what recovery means to me. Okay. So I'd ask you what were the things that got you into recovery to begin with, but I think we kind of already covered that. Really, sounds like it. Yep. I think the between the criminal justice system and a, and you know what, this part I want to make sure I talk about, and maybe you have this question, but also thank God my state has a good treatment system. Cause I, my, I didn't pay a dime for my treatment. I, we have a, we have a consolidated treatment fund there that is paid for some legislation and through counties funding and this. So That's I, awesome. I got 10 months and I would have got longer if I didn't go to prison of free treatment. And wow. Right. In a, in, a, in a residential, well, outpatient first, but residential treatment system where, I mean, I, I, I know now what it costs because I work there. Right. Uh, but I, I, so I got $30,000 or more worth of services for free because my state has a good treatment center. And I'm not going to lie. It's because, I mean, I, there's probably some privilege involved there. Like, uh, you know, because I'm white. Uh, I don't live in a lower uh, uh, a neighborhood that is a lower economic status, things like that. So, but really, I that's what we've been talking about. Like I, my friend Andrew Berkey, like everyone needs to have that. Say that's why Andrew will tell you all the time because he got to go to treatment for free. Like that's that doesn't happen. That that so doesn't happen in this country enough. Right. We everyone do. Yeah. It's like anymore. A lot of residentials are like ten to fourteen days. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or, or that wash, whip, wash, rinse, repeat. 28-day uh, cycle, which yeah. we know doesn't work. I mean, well, you talked about it earlier. The longer somebody's engaged, mm -hmm. the less likely they are to go back to old behaviors. Yep. You know. Yep. So yeah. So in early recovery, I mean, you were in prison. Yeah. But there's still drugs of it. I mean, I was oh in God. prison, and I could still get drugs <laughs> in prison. So yeah. what help? What's the one thing that helped you maintain your recovery the most? People. So connecting with. Uh, people that didn't want to use drugs. So in prison, I mean, that's, that's the easiest way to say it. So you're right. I was incarcerated. My first, uh, my longest piece was in Wasika Federal Prison in Southern Minnesota. Uh, and it was a very, it was called an FCI. So Federal Correctional Institute, low security. We still have a double 20, double fence, 20 feet high barbed wire. Right. I mean, you're like on an island still in the middle of Wasika. But anyways, 
Uh, and it was an old uh, United, uh, University of Minnesota horticulture college. And so there were just dorm rooms. So we lived in, there was, you know, dorms in the bay. I mean, we lived in dorm rooms, four people to a 15 by 15 room. We were pretty tight quarters. But anyways, and there were drugs literally in the next room. Like, I, I knew guys that were involved in the drug trade and how it worked in the prison right. system. It's re- it gets in there so easily. It's ridiculous. Uh, especially at a place like that, like their main way to get in here, I'm going to divulge a little prison secret. So we, they, that prison is located right in, right on the, on the edge of town. So you through one of the fences, you can see houses. And what they did is they would get people in the community, they'd pay them a lot of money, and they'd take racquetballs, and they'd put a slit into the racquetball with a, with a razor knife. And you know those old coin purses, you squeeze them, right. but they open up. So the same thing happens with the racquetballs. They'd open it up, they'd fill it full of whatever, a lot of tobacco, because tobacco became illegal in prison. Uh, but tobacco, drug, whatever you want, and then they just chuck them over the fence, and uh, and you'd see. I mean, it was hilarious. Like, so I worked at a yard crew, and I actually was involved with it for a very short period of time. And then I decided this is too dangerous, and I don't want to go back to like right. to Ohio. I don't need more time. Right. So, but they would. You'd see twenty racquetballs fly over the fence, and you'd collect them, put them in your bucket, cover them with leaves and grass, and bring them back into the prison. Really easy. So drugs were readily available. Of course, they're only available to people that had the money, money, because it's. It's eat. It's way more expensive. Like I mean, right. unbelievably more expensive. But I decided I made the decision. No matter what, I wasn't going to use. But people did it for me. So when I got to prison, I connected with people that didn't use drugs. So would you say then, maybe that's one of the most important things you've done for your recovery? Yes, honestly, I, when I I can say even after prison and now in my life, if I look at the people I've connected with, Ryan Hampton, who's a good friend of mine, Sean O'Donnell, Garrett. People, you, Chad Sabora, I mean, people I connected with, Eric Moffat, they're people that I think are like-minded right. and, and don't, and not all, and you know, there's, there's a lot of them that aren't recovery people that are normies that just don't want to use drugs. Like imagine that, like, don't, right. I, I thought, wow, people don't, ju- there's people that don't drink at all. Why would you not want to? Right? Why would you not want to? Right. I talk about my wife, like my wife's never done anything. My- and I'm like, when I met her, she was like a unicorn. You know, yeah. I'm like, what people, how are you at 30 and you don't have a felony? <laughs> right, exactly. You know, I'm like, well, where the heck did you hide? My wife's an army. But she can have a, a wine, a glass of wine or a cigarette at New Year's. And that's it. I'm like, what's the point? <laughs> right. <laughs> what a waste. <laughs> I'm like, but where's your next one? Right. Exactly. I was talking to somebody yesterday and she talked, she's uh, engaged to um, a guy that drinks and she mm-hmm. said their first date, she's in recovery yeah. and their date was New Year's Eve. And, they went out and he had two beers and then he ordered a soda and sat around and talked. And she's like, after about an hour, she's like, aren't you going to order another beer? And he's like, no, why would I do that? And she's like, it was the weirdest thing to me. So yeah, you know, that's one thing that I do want to get, even with drugs, I know people that use in moderation and they don't have the same, affliction that I have. I mean, if you look at a bot, the body I have now, when I got sober, I need to gain 50 pounds. Right. I gained 120 <laughs> right. because I don't do things in moderation. Right. It's right. just not in my DNA, which also makes us amazing recovery advocates because we don't do that in moderation either. either. Absolutely not. So, so let's see, is there one thing you do every day that helps you maintain your recovery? Like, do you have any rituals? I mean, so my, 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 my I mean, my ritual in the mornings, I get up and the first thing I do is Grab my and actually no, it's, and this is my. I know this might sound silly, but I get up every day. First thing I do is get my coffee. Uh, I sit down at my desk and I pop open my laptop and I go through my social media feed. And the first, but one of the first things I do almost every day is so. I mean, of course, I use social media in probably a much different way than maybe some, maybe not. I have like forty seven hundred friends, which 
they're not really friends, but right. they're it's a great network. But I go through my like so every day. In fact, I forgot to this morning. So I'm in Vegas because I didn't have my normal routine. I got my coffee though, but just not the laptop. It said, anyways, I go and I first thing I do is I wish whoever's on my list, they all get wished happy birthday. Okay. Like, and then I go through and I just look at like, has anyone, cause a lot of times, you know, algorithm on Facebook, if you like when you, I found that now because I type in words like recovery all the time or addiction all the time or opioids all the time. The first things I see on my newsfeed are like, I just celebrated 10 years of recovery. Today's my sobriety day. Right. So those come up first because of the algorithms, uh, which is cool. So I get, so I see those and I always make sure like I acknowledge those even if it's someone I don't even really know, they're just a fake, but they set up today's my 10 year, they see the, the 10, the X and tell I make sure I actually not just like or love the comment. I actually write a comment. Like I'll write congrats and then hash some hashtag, hashtag read to recover. I think that really helps me like, uh, and I know that people appreciate that. Like they, I mean, they want right. they wouldn't have put it up there if they didn't want to acknowledge it. Right. And so I like acknowledging that. I think everybody likes an attaboy. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So, what keeps you from going back to those old behaviors? Yeah, I think uh, self-freedom, <laughs> the word I said before. But no, it's more than that. It's that I have now – so I'm one of my favorite uh, treatment modalities uh, is called – and we, you'll know it, but listeners may – stages of change. Right. So I love that. Like I've done presentations on it. I think I, – I always – when I see meet people, I what stage of change? I like put them in a stage. Like right. in, no matter what it is, not substance use disorder, <laughs> just things like kind of a bad habit of mine. Uh, but so pre-contemplation, pre contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance. And then sometimes relapse may fall in there. It doesn't have to. And then there's a – I learned there's a, a, another stage, a, 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 what I call a seventh stage. Uh, about 10 years ago – I discovered it about five years ago when I was in college – I did a presentation. It's called the transcendence. Uh, and wow. So that's that word. Just think about transcendence for a minute. What does it mean? Right. So you can Google it or look it up. So it means to, uh, that you've become such a different person that it's nearly impossible or there's no way that you can return to that old person. And so I always say I like I think I've transcended. I don't even I don't see how it'd be. I'm not saying it couldn't happen because I know it's still inside of me. Uh, I know all it would take would be one drink or one line of cocaine and probably be off to the races. So that's why I don't risk it. I don't well, why? To, uh, because you know, my life, my life is so great now. No, what I was saying, oh. exactly. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Is why would you, uh, I have that conversation with people. I'm like, I'll never go back. No, don't get me wrong. I mean, I died three times in a car wreck. That's how I got started on opioids. Yeah. I had a meth problem before, but I came out of a coma on a morphine yeah. trip. And maybe that's, but why would I intentionally put something in my body that's going to cause me to, you know, pain. to lose pain. your significant other, right. to lose your career, to lose your hobbies, to, you know, ultimately end up back in jail or prison? What, what, what could, what could possibly make you risk that? And I hear people that are like, well, you know, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Really? Because I've got a daughter. I know I'm not going to strangle my daughter to death. And I know that I'm not going to do anything that would risk me never spending time with my kids again. You know? Well, I think that's a great point. People, you know, and obviously in the world we live in, like you and I are very socially engaged. Uh, and you hear people, you, I don't read the comment section, right, of those posts. when, And I do. <laughs> and they should do all you get trapped in them yeah, sometimes. They, they, yeah. So, oh my God, they should all be dead. <laughs> they made it. They made, a, their own, they made their own choice. Well, all those things, you know. And I tell people, like, my favorite thing is, says, you're right. When I was five years old playing in the sandbox and with all the neighborhood kids, we started to say, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And we heard policemen, firemen, 
uh, uh, lawyer, doctor, president of the United States. But when it came to my around to me, no, Randy said addict, and mm-hmm. I want to, and I want to, I, I want to lose everything. Convict. Right, right, right. I, that's what I want. I want to pick that. I want to lose everything. I want to die or near death a couple times. Like that sounds fun. And I want to go to prison. Like perfect. That's sign me up. That's so I say to people, I said, so think about that. That's it's. Like, you're right. I didn't choose that. Like, right. nobody would choose that. Like, so stop telling me that I'm a moral failing and I made a choice, a bad decision. I'm not going to lie. The first time when I sat down that day at that table when I was 13 or 14 years old at that graduation party and I drank alcohol, I made a choice, like, right. to drink that day. I didn't know. I, we had we had the D.A.R.E. program. No offense. Uh, I didn't know what the effects. And I didn't have any genetic history. Like I did, I knew I was adopted, but at that point I didn't know any of my family right. history. And I'm not saying that would have changed my trajectory, but had I been armed with a little bit more tools of education, like, hey, you come from a family that an entire family that struggles with substance use issues, when you use or or pick up or start to experiment, there's a you're at a much higher risk because of your predisposition. I'm not saying I would have stopped, but I didn't get it. I wasn't given a choice, right? And we've already talked about the gifts of recovery, so. You know, if you could travel back in time, and you just kind of talked about it a little yeah, bit, I think, yeah. you know, about the education piece, um, and talk to yourself the day before you used, what would you say? What would you say to yourself? Well, so if if I if I could do that now, with obviously with the knowledge I have, I would probably uh, I would probably tell myself like, hey, this is going to put your life in a trajectory on a path. That there's no, um, there may not be coming. You may not be able to come back from or right. return from. Like, so think, I'm not, you know, I, and I'm not a fan of like I don't like to tell people what to do because we know how well that works out. So even if I go back in time, I don't think I'd want to tell myself what to do. But I would definitely say to myself, like, Hey, Randy, if you do this, I'm I'm gonna t- I'm, I'm letting you know that this is this is the real possible consequences of this action. And are you willing to put yourself on that trajectory? That's probably what I'd tell myself. That simply, probably, too. Yeah, I, I feel like we lie to kids. Um, I, I speak at schools on occasion. Yeah. And I always start off the exact same way. You know, hi, my name is David. I'm a person in long-term recovery. Yeah. What that means for me, da 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 And then I'm like, you know, they brought me in here to talk to you about drugs. And I want to let you know right now, I love drugs. And I loved the way drugs make me feel. Uh and then I stop and I look around right. <laughs> and I see teachers like whispering to right. each other, like what eyes we, what did we bring in here? wide right. open. And, and then I say, but I hate the person that turned me into over time. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about. Right. Because I feel like sometimes, like I was lied to, yeah. you know, um, drugs are horrible. And honestly, I tell people I didn't have a drug problem. I had a drug solution because I had tons of drama. Right. And whatever I used, it treated that trauma for me. You know, so I, I think if we were more honest also, maybe we would have a little more success instead of drugs are bad, drugs are bad. I smoke weed and I'm like, hey, that was amazing. I wonder what cocaine's like, you know. So, yeah, I definitely think that we could do a lot better in educating our youth, educating our parents. And not just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. Like, we should have curriculums, right? I'm not, I mean, evidence-based practice, our latest catchword in our field. Right. I'm not saying that's not a bad idea. However, I'm, I'm saying when, if we... Like, so we have this program in Minnesota, uh, and it, people don't like who funds it, and that's fine. It's Minnesota Dalton Teen Challenge, and 
people have thoughts about their programs, right? That's fine. But it's called Know the Truth, and they're not a religious program. It's an it's an adolescent prevention program right. that they don't bring religion in. Like it's they go into schools, they go into about two to three hundred schools a year, and usually the health classes in the school. That's and it's, they go in there and they bring in a, a young person, someone between the age of eighteen and twenty five, that's in recovery. And, that's huge. and then and have them tell just talk to them like what this is what happened to me when I started using and when and when what my what it did for I mean they just bring those like those real life lived experiences and I'm telling you what the impact that I've been in some I've I've participated and got got to go there because I have friends with the people that run the program and it's huge and so to see when when a when a young person's talking to another young person uh, about recovery. Uh, and things like that, I think it's huge. So I think it's great. I mean, that's the key right there. But that's evidence-based practice to me. Like, I don't care what you want to say. Like, that's evidence-based practice. Well, that's awesome. Randy, I want to uh, thank you for your time. We made it through our 10 questions. Wow. And uh, really quickly, now you have something that's called uh, Bold North <laughs> Consulting, correct? Bold North Recovery and Consulting. Okay. I'll let you plug yourself really quick. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, so I've been... Working in treatment for a while now as a first an intern, then a temporary license, and now licensed alcohol and drug counselor in Minnesota. And I, I honestly, primary care, I found I thought I really would love it, and I hated it. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I love the clients. Like I worked at the same treatment center I went to treatment, so and I had the same office my counselor had, which was like weird, <coughs> uh, but cool. Uh, but the problem is, is our documentation requirements, and this is probably the same in most states, is so overwhelming. Like. We sit at a computer for 70% of our time and do paperwork. Right. And that's not what I became a counselor for. I mean, I knew I'd have to do that, but I, I was thinking it'd be like 40% or maybe even 50% of my time. Uh, I would be at doing paperwork. I was. I have expectations that sort of, that's kind of what they prepare us right. for in school. Uh, so I said, I can't do that anymore. Uh, my wife, I was losing sleep. I was just stressed about, I couldn't keep up. And I don't work well behind. Like, I'm, that's not how I live. If you can live in that space, you're fine. But if you can't, you're screwed. So I, I decided to step away. I became a, a overdose prevention manager for the Steve Rummer Hope Network for about a year where I was a volunteer and a board member for. But that's where I got to do a lot more of the Naloxone trainings. But then one day, I just kind of had enough of that. Attitudes, you know, got in the way. And I just decided it was time for me to make the leap. And so February 27th, I quit with an e February 26th, maybe. And then I quit with an email, which wasn't a very nice thing to do. Uh, whatever. Divorced uh, by facts. Yeah, right. Uh, and I, next day, I, I uh, next day, Bold North Recovery and Consulting was born. And it was really because a friend of mine, I was going to take two weeks off and write a business plan and figure out what I wanted to do. But at 6.30 a.m. when I changed my Facebook status, I, I got a phone. Well, like my phone blew up and people were in shock. Like, oh, my God, you left where and why? And one of my good friends, Julie Alexander, called me and said, Randy, what happened? And so I told her. And she's like, so I, she, she works for a large or SAMHSA funded organization. She goes, I have opportunities for you, but you need to be an LLC. And I'm like, I'm, I'm driving, I'm driving in a snowstorm two hours in traffic that morning uh, to do, do drop off some Narcan kits at a high school that I was really excited. This was the, we finally implemented the first high school to have okay. Narcan. Anyways. And uh, so I'm, I'm like, shit, I got to come up with a name. And so I'm driving. I think I even called my friend Jesse that morning. Uh, and I called another friend, like I was running names by them. And so it just in a in a snowstorm driving and stuck in rush hour traffic I, was the name was born that afternoon. I went online, I registered it with the state of Minnesota, bought the domain name, bought all the email addresses. I mean everything. So I spent spent a sh crap ton of money that day. 
But and then I uh, and I was born and I started. Uh, I decided there's four things I wanted to do. Like so, I have the four pillars of my business that I call it. So now in Minnesota, as a licensed telecom drug counselor, I can I can provide private independent counseling services, which is just new for our state this year. Right. So I can hang a shingle. So I'm right now what I'm doing though is like just assessments basically to get people into treatment. So that's I can also do the individual counseling and things like that. Counseling services. So peer recovery support services, hugely important I think. And I. Uh, I'm a I'm a CCAR trainer, so the Connecticut Community Addiction Recovery. I can't right. get their name right ever. Uh, CCAR. So, but I'm a trainer through them, and so this is my thought. I want to so I, I can train recovery coaches or peer recovery specialists. And I this is what I tell people all the time. I want to train an army of recovery coaches, and I want them embedded everywhere in every business, in every school, in every in every treatment center, in every sober living facility, because that's where substance use disorder occurs is in all right. those places. So and then I also do uh, uh, overdose prevention stuff. I'm still doing trainings and distributing naloxone kits, much smaller scale now, but I'm still doing it. And then my last pillar is advocacy. I really wanted to put lobbying down, but my wife said no. Like you have to have a different fine, right. uh, a different organization for lobbying. And she goes, plus then you have to do live reports and this and that. She goes, but if you put the word advocacy, you can do that stuff. If you, I mean, and you still probably get paid somewhat and not have to really report anything. Eventually, I think I want to do more lobbying. Well, actually, I probably, I think I'm going to skip that step and go, I'm running for office next year. So I'm just going to skip that step and uh, and I'm running for either Minnesota State Senate or Minnesota House of Representatives. I haven't made a decision which one yet, but that's my business. So Bold North Recovery and Consulting, uh, I'm based out of my house in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Uh, www.boldnorthrecoveryandconsulting.com. Uh, I learned how to build a website. I did it myself because I had no money to start right. this business, really, basically. I mean, uh, so, yeah, so that's that's where we're at. So, Well, that's awesome. Uh, good luck. Uh, my last advice for you, if it's set up anything like Missouri, run for state rep yeah. and then do your terms there, and then you can bump up to Senate. Yeah. And that way you can do your terms there, too. Uh, the Senate bothers me in Minnesota because they have to wear suits on the floor. <laughs> you guys that know me know I'm a hat and t-shirt kind of guy. So Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time. And man, let's mobilize some recovery. Sounds good. Thanks, David. Thank you. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, BLIR underscore NPO. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. One host knows sports. And who's right there? The other doesn't know sports, but somehow they meet in the middle. Corey Mann. Get your big butt out of here. And Indiana Sports Broadcast Hall of Famer. This one will be relived. Chuck Freebie. Forever. Do you like sports? Because we like sports. Let's talk about sports. It's Sports Yak. Sports Yak. It's Sports Yak.